If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Proverbs. We're going to park there for pretty much most of the morning. We'll look at Psalm 141, verse 3, in just a second as well. We come back this morning to finish dealing with the monster in our mouth. And so the second installment in that message. To get us started, have y'all ever watched A Christmas Story? The movie, A Christmas Story? Y'all remember the infamous flagpole scene? I think I've got it on the screen here in a second. Ralphie and Flick, they're surrounded by their classmates and they're arguing if a person's tongue will stick to a metal pole in below freezing weather. Y'all remember that? And Flick succumbs to the infamous triple dog dare. And so he sticks his tongue out and touches it to the flagpole and sure enough, what happens? It gets stuck. Recess bell sounds and everybody else heads back to the classroom except for old Flick. And the teacher looks out the window and she sees him writhing in pain because his tongue is stuck to the flagpole. Any of you ever been in that predicament? No, don't see anybody. How about this? Any of you know what it's like for your tongue to get you into trouble? All of us. As we've already established, 10 predictions for your life in 2020, number four, you will be dangerous. You will let your tongue out of its cage. It will cause harm. And thus, we said Psalm 141.3 should be our prayer. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. We noted the road to hell is paved with good intentions and we have to have an action plan in place to turn that prayer into a reality and deal with this unruly monster in our mouth. And so we continue to do that exactly this morning, lay out an action plan to deal with our tongues in 2020 and beyond. Recap from last time, we said we should speak truthful words, fewer words, pure words, common words, cheerful words, and evangelistic words. Are you ready for the monster in your mouth part two? If you are, stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. It's there on the screen. Go just one over. Proverbs 18, 21, and then Psalm 141, 3. I would encourage you, if you have not done so already, to memorize these two verses. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Psalm 141, 3, Therefore set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. The Word of God and the people of God and the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and thank you so much for the worship experience that you have given us so far. Father, what a blessing for us to see our children and our grandchildren come forward and not only sing, but Father, sing back Scripture. And so we thank you for that. Father, you, your Son said, Suffer not the little children coming to you and so we thank you so much for the worship service the beautiful singing that you've given us the challenge you've given us father to take these bottles and literally with our change change a life and so we come now to your word and father i just pray that you would help us to set aside the daily cares of our lives and father i pray your people don't need to hear from me this morning they need to hear from you and so i pray that you would just speak through me father teach us how to deal with our unruly tongues We ask this now in the wonderful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So number seven, we've dealt with six, the first 
time. Number seven with regards to the monster in our mouth is that we should speak wise words. So the seventh step in setting a guard over the monster in our mouth and reaping life more than death with our speech is to speak wise words. Psalm 49.3, may want to write that in there in your reference. It says, My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. And so when I say wise words, when the psalmist mentions that he will speak wisdom, what do I mean? What did he mean? Are we to run around quoting Scripture? Well, as we'll see in a bit, yes, that's definitely needed. But what I mean when I say wise words is this, a word fitly spoken. So look at Proverbs 15, 23. I want to read several verses in Proverbs this morning. Proverbs 15, 23. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. One translation says this, how wonderful it is, to be able to say the right thing at the right time. In fact, I would say wise words are this. The right word, the right time, the right way. And let me explain that. First, let's take the wrong time. Any of you got daughters? I've got two of them. Praise the Lord for my sanity and health. They are now adults out on their own. But imagine your daughter is crying over a breakup with her boyfriend, she's squalling her eyes out, and you say, well, he's always been a loser. And it launches her into orbit, she storms off to her room, crying and squalling, and telling you how insensitive you are, and you're like, what did I say? It was the right word, but it was the wrong time, wasn't it? Proverbs 25, 11 says, timely advice is lovely, like golden apples in a silver basket. So wrong time, the wrong way. Now ladies, envision this. I know you've got to play along, but just envision this, that your husband is washing the after Thanksgiving dishes. Like I said, I know you've got to, you know, you got to uh, play along here. And so he's drying one of your special platters. And he says as sweet as he can, honey, where does this go? And you say, the same china cabinet it's been in the last ten years. Now, was that the right word? It goes in that china cabinet. Well, was that the right way? Proverbs 21.9 says, It's better to live in the corner of an attic than with a crabby woman in a lovely home. <laughs> wrong time, wrong way, wrong word. Let me give you an illustration of that. A 16-year-old boy asked his dad's advice on how to woo the girl of his dreams. And he says, Well, son, when you take her out for pizza tonight, you're sitting across from the table from her, take her hand, in yours and gaze lovingly into her eyes and softly say, wow, girl, you have a face that would make time stand still. So that night they're out eating, he takes her hand in his, he gazes into her eyes and he gets so nervous, he can't remember anything that his dad says and he blurts out suddenly, whoa, babe, you've got a face that stop a clock. <laughs> the wrong word, right? Again, Proverbs 15, 23, how wonderful it is to be able to say the right thing the right time. There's something about a word fitly spoken. The right word, right time, right way. The right word, the wrong time, or the wrong way, still is wrong. And so the right time, the right way, the right word is wise words indeed. And so an easy test is this, T-H-I-N-K. T 
T-H-I-N-K. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? True, helpful, inspiring, necessary, kind. If we would let what we're about to say pass out of our lips, pass that test first, then we would go a long way to speaking wise words. So Jesus will be Lord of our lives and our lips. We'll speak wise words. And number eight, we will speak persuasive words. So the eighth step in setting a guard over the monster in our mouth and reaping life over death with our speech is to speak persuasive words. So turn to Proverbs 16. We're going to park there for just a second. So what I mean when I say we should speak persuasive words, does that mean loud? Does it mean firm? Does it mean very eloquent? Scripture says it's this, sweetly. Look at Proverbs 16, 21. The wise of heart is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. So what increases persuasiveness? Sweetness of speech. So persuasive words are sweet words. Well, I'm going to give you why, now that we said what, they're sweet words. Why? Well, number one, because they're powerful. Thoreau said this, he said, Thaw with her gentle persuasion is more powerful than Thor with his hammer. The one melts, the other breaks into pieces. Aesop said persuasion is often more effectual than force. And one anonymous person said, I think the power of persuasion would be the greatest superpower of all time. So persuasive words are powerful and then they're pleasing. To God, that is. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Who is it that we're trying to please with our speech ultimately? Am I trying to please my wife? Am I trying to please my, or please my co-workers or my kids? Who am I ultimately trying to please with my speech? It's God. It's Jesus who's Lord of my life. He should be Lord of my lips, and so I should seek to please uh, uh, speech that pleases Him. So what type of speech pleases God? Look at Proverbs 16, 23. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. So it's powerful, it's pleasing, and then it's potent. Look at Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. How many of you know that honey is very, very powerful to the physical body? Same thing, honey is very, very powerful spiritually. In fact, the book of Psalms has been called the Hebrew hymnal, and so it's like honey in that. And so one pastor was preaching on Proverbs 16, 24 there to keep your words sweet, and he said, you know you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And a woman in the congregation turned to her husband and put her head on his shoulder and whispered these sweet words. She said, I just love to watch your muscles ripple when you take out the garbage. <laughs> so, persuasive words. What they are, they're sweet words. Why? Powerful. They're pleasing. They're potent. How? We said sweet words. Think of it this way. Honey words. Not fake. Not flattery. Not false. Again, go back to think. Is it true? Helpful. Inspiring. Necessary. Kind. Listen to this poem. A careless word may kindle strife. A cruel word may wreck a life. 
A bitter word may hate and steal, a brutal word may smite and kill. A gracious word may smooth the way, a joyous word may light the day. A timely word may lessen stress, a loving word may heal and bless. And so Jesus would truly be Lord of lives, he'd be Lord of our lips, and we'll speak persuasive or sweet words. So speak wise words, speak persuasive words. Number nine, speak corrective words. The ninth step in setting a guard over the months in our mouth and reaping life over death with our speech is to speak corrective words. There are definite times in which our speech should be sweet. Amen? There also should be times in which that's not the only thing that is called for. When we need to lovingly correct someone. The biblical word for that is rebuke. We know this to be true experientially. How many of you know that sometimes you've had to speak to your kids in a way other than just sweetly? Or possibly a co-worker? Or a family member? I had a conversation with a gentleman in the office Friday in which he said, it's going to be time for some tough love with my son. He's making some dangerous choices in his life. And sweetness of speech was not what was called for in that moment. He needed to be corrected. He needed to be rebuked. So we know this true experientially. We know it true scripturally. Look at Proverbs 12, 1. <clears throat> Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is what? Stupid. We're not supposed to say the S word, right? Stupid. But if you do not take correction, you literally are stupid. That's what Scripture says. You're, you're, you're dumb. Look at Proverbs 15.10. Why would we be stupid in not taking correction? There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will what? Doesn't Scripture teach that there's a sin unto death? And what that means is, can't we sin and do things that will prematurely take us out? Yes. And if someone came along and rebuked me for that, could they not potentially, and I accepted their corrective words, could I not potentially save my life? And that's why it says there in Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of what? The tongue. Because sometimes corrective words, a rebuke, literally could be a matter of life and death. And this gentleman that I was talking about that's going to have to give his son some tough love, I can tell you based on what he was telling me, if his son does not listen to what his dad says, he's going to end up dead before he's 40. Alright, so why? Why should we speak corrective words? Why is it necessary at times to rebuke someone? Because sometimes you've got to hurt folks to help them. Wouldn't you agree? Any of you know that that's true, that the doctor sometimes has to hurt you to help you? My dearest friend, Marty Bowers, is back here. And Marty, didn't you have to go through some immense pain to get your bone marrow biopsy to figure out what was wrong with you? Was it not worth the pain? Because he's still here. Many of you may not know, but I serve as 
uh, Covenant High School, the team doctor, I've been doing that for probably 16 or 17 years. I love it. It gives my wife a break. I'm out of the house on Friday night. So she's like, hallelujah, for at least two or three months, I don't have to deal with him on Friday night. But as part of those duties, let me give you a couple examples of some ways in which I've had to hurt someone to help them. One time I had to give a boy who was throwing up the whole day Friday and he said, I am not missing this game. And he was dehydrated and come halftime, guess what I had to do? I had to give him an IV. Now do you think he enjoyed that big old needle as big as a straw going in his arm? Do you think he enjoyed me squeezing those IV fluids through him? Any of you ever got IV fluids? How cold you feel? So he's now got pain and he's feeling cold, but guess what? It helped him. I had to hurt him to help him. I've run out on the field before and kids laying there and his you know, shoulder is screaming in pain. I've had people come in the office and they're like, yeah, doc, I think my shoulder's dislocated. And they're talking just plain like this. I'm like, you obviously have never seen anybody with a dislocated shoulder. <laughs> So he's screaming in pain, and I grab his arm, and I start twisting, and he's like, what are you doing? Oh, oh. It's back in. I had to hurt him to help him. I won't go into too much vivid detail, but two years ago, Covenant was playing Ripley, and literally, me to the TV screen, I saw the play unfolding, and I saw one of the Ripley kids get bent backward, and I was like, this is not going to end well. And when he came up, his ankle and his, his foot were not in the same direction. So I had to run out there and I had to bring it back into place. And guess what? It what, didn't feel good, but I had to hurt him to help him. You get the picture. And doesn't the same go for God? Doesn't He sometimes have to hurt us to help us? Look at Hebrews 12. I mean, how many of you enjoy discipline? I mean, as a father, I, I tell, told my kids, they've heard this speech many times, I think y'all think I enjoy fussing. Y'all ever feel like that as parents? I think y'all like think I wake up in the morning and I'm like, yes, I get to fuss at a kid today. I don't enjoy fussing. Well, sometimes I have to do it. Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment... Does it say some discipline? It says all discipline seems what? Painful rather than pleasing, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so sometimes God does this through His own Word. That's why it's important for us to be in Scripture. For Him to rebuke me as I'm reading it. Sometimes He does it through other people. Biblical proof that He does it through other people is in Matthew 18. That's church discipline. But turn to James chapter 5. You're right there in Hebrews. It's just one over. How many of you know that church discipline is biblical? That's part of the problem in our churches is that we don't practice it, honestly. And so if your brother has offended you, then what should you do? Talk about him behind his back? should go to him. Correct him. Rebuke him. Say, hey, you upset me. James 5, 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So let me ask you, how are we to speak corrective words? How are we to rebuke somebody? Now, boy, 
You said that the other day at church. Man, you had me fired up. Is that how we're to do it? Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. One translation says you must do it in a gentle way. Another translation says you should save your critical comments for yourself. So in some, it should be gently, kindly, lovingly, not critically. And then finally, to what extent? To what extent should we correct people and rebuke people? Rarely. And then we must be very careful, right? Rebukes should hopefully be rare things. Anybody that runs around saying, I have the spiritual gift of rebuking, we ought to slap. <laughs> now y'all joke about that, but I'm telling you, I know a guy who said that he literally had a self-professed ministry of rebuking and correcting people in error. No one should run around loving to just rebuke Folks, and let me tell you, you know where it should occur the best? Outside of your marriage, for one. Number two, in same-sex small groups. You know who, if some people came to me and they corrected me or they rebuked me, you know what I would do? I'd be like, whoa, you're not in that position. Now, if that man that I just talked about, Marty Bowers, comes to me and he corrects me or he rebukes me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it to heart. Because you see, we meet as a small group where it's confidential and accountable. That's why discipleship, as Jesus taught, is so important. And so if you're not part of a small group, you're depriving yourself of what God potentially wants to do the discipline. Amen. So speak wise words, persuasive words, corrective words. Number 10 is encouraging words. Tenth step and setting a guard over the monster in our mouth and wreaking life over death. Their speech is to speak encouraging words. Why? First off, it's biblical. In Acts 15.32, it talks about two of the disciples that went around strengthening and encouraging the brothers with many words. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Any of you ever heard this? Somebody starts to quote this, Hebrews 10. Now you know we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves and trying to get on to someone and rebuke them about not coming to church, right? And that is true, we should do that. But what is the point? Look at 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit is some. Why? Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How many of you need encouragement? This is like an encouragement filling station. And when your gas tank is down on empty and you ain't got any encouragement you need some encouragement to go out and handle Monday morning. Amen? And this is the place to fill it up. And too many times in our churches what we do is it's discouraging. We need to come in here and meet together so we can encourage one another because we've got to go back out there for the battle. 
So not only is it biblical, but it's critical. You know what they do in the ICU? They put IV fluids in people. And it potentially restores their life. They give them medication that literally brings their blood pressure up and sustains their life. They give them transfusion of blood that is life-giving. So think of words of encouragement as exactly that. It's like a bag of IV fluids. It's like a dose of medication that strengthens your heart. It's like a transfusion of blood into a man that doesn't have any. What do we say? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Encouraging words put courage in you. They give you life. Discouraging words suck courage out of you. And our life kill it. And listen, brothers and sisters, right now in the society we're in, there are hundreds of ways to do this. How many of you have phone numbers of people here in the church and text them on a regular basis? We got text. We got Facebook, we got Twitter, Instagram, all these things. Let's not just use them for selfish purposes. Let's use them to encourage one another, lift one another up. Let me give you a great example of the power of encouragement. Have you ever heard of Howard Hendricks? Somebody did. I had never, even as a pastor, I had never heard of Howard Hendricks. He was a longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for over 50 years. Now let me ask you this. How many of you ever heard of Chuck Swindoll? Tony Evans? Robert Jeffries? I listened to him this morning. David Jeremiah? Howard Hendricks was the mentor for those gentlemen. He was a keynote speaker for Promise Keepers. He authored 16 books, ministered over 18 countries, and chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys for almost uh, 10 years. He came from a broken family. He was a problem kid. Listen to this. His first day in fifth fifth grade, the teacher said, Oh, Howard Hendricks. I've heard a lot about you. I hear you're the worst kid in the whole school. You know what we call that? We call that self-fulfilling prophecy, don't we? Mm-hmm. Now imagine if I walked in the room to one of my patients and I said, Oh, I've already heard the word on the street from you. I heard you're the worst diabetic in all of Tipton County. You won't do anything that any doctor tells you. You think I'm going to get their trust? That's what she told this kid. He, so then, the next school year, and guess what? He did that year, guess what he did? He was the worst kid in the whole school. Next year rolls around sixth grade. His teacher says, oh, you're Howard Hendricks. I've heard you're the worst boy in this school. He thought, well, here we go again. And she said, you know what? I don't believe a word of it. And she sought to every day encourage that kid And Howard Hendricks, who has mentored all of these giants of the faith that we just talked about, served Jesus in over 80 countries. A sixth grade teacher who encouraged him was the difference. Can I tell you, I have a similar story. I was a 12th grader. I'd seen some documentaries on what it was like to be a doctor, and I thought, I am not going through that headache. I'm not staying up 36 hours and go through all that I have to to become a doctor. So I was going to change my major and be a physicist. 
And I had taken this one gentleman, Mr. Smith, for Biology 1, and then I needed to add something to my schedule, so I took him for Biology 2. And I was coming out of physics, and he stopped me in the hall, and he said, what are you doing? And I'm like, I mean, I wasn't a troubled kid, and I'm thinking, well, I don't remember doing anything, but I probably did something. Maybe my dad called, you know, what's going on? He said, what in the world are you doing going into physics? You were meant to be in medicine. You know, I stand here before you today as a physician because a man took the time in the hall of Shelbyville Central High School to encourage me to pursue something that really God now has used me in five or six different countries to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So pour encouragement into people. All right, number 11, speak wholesome words. The 11th step, setting a guard over the monster in our mouth and reaping life over death with our speech is to speak wholesome words. Now, you're going to hear a lot here in the upcoming year, 2020. It's an election year about climate change and this and that. What would you say is the number one ecological problem in America? The greatest source of filth and pollution. Is it landfills? Is it water pollution? Is it illegal waste dumping? Is it carbon monoxide emissions? Is it pesticides? Number one ecological problem in America, the greatest source of filth and pollution is right here. The tongue. James 3.6 says the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. That means to pollute or contaminate. Ephesians 4.29 says let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That word corrupting in the Greek literally means foul or rotten and was used of spoiled fruit or putrid meat. When unwholesome words come out of my mouth and come out of your mouth, it's like putrid meat is coming forth. Is that what we want to be happening if Jesus were to come back in that moment? The greatest source of filth and pollution in America is right here. So how do we speak wholesome words? Well, we speak them towards God and then we speak them towards others with regards to God. Psalm 8.1 says to bless God's name. You read a book, you catch a movie, you turn on Netflix, you watch a sporting event, radio, listen to people at, at work. One thing in common over and over you hear the taking of the Lord's name in vain, don't you? I would say it's probably America's favorite pastime is take the Lord's name in vain. And we may be tempted as Christians to say, well, that's no big deal. But would you know that twice in the first five books of the Bible that God says any man that takes his name in vain, he will not hold him guiltless. And so just quickly, I'll give you a couple things. What are some ways that we take the Lord's name in vain? We can swear, but that's not it. We can profane His name to strip it away of meaning. We can pledge something, say, any of you, oh, God, I, I promise I'm going to do that. If you ever say that, you better be sure that you do it. Amen? We can forget His name. We can leave Him out of things. There's a lot of Christian songs that leave Him out of it. If you didn't know that it was a Christian song, you wouldn't be able to tell by the lyrics. We can defile His name by our hypocritical living. We can despise His name by putting ourselves above Him and we can misuse His name. We can say things such as this, God is never going to put on you more than you can handle. 
And I dare you to find that in Scripture. What Paul said is that God's grace was sufficient. Amen. You see, God is going to put some more on you than you can handle. Why? So you can depend on Him. Amen. So we speak wholesome words to God and we speak it towards others. Colossians 3.8 says to throw away obscene talk. Well, what's that? Coarse jokes, foul language, gossip, slander, put-downs. I'll give you a quick illustration. Processes that destroy marriages. They studied couples for years and decades, and there wasn't really one thing that they could find that kept people married. Not how in love they were, how much affection, how much they fought, or what they fought about. You know what was the difference in those who stayed and those who didn't? Put-downs. Those who stayed, about five out of a hundred comments were put-downs. Those who split, ten out of a hundred were. And that gap magnified over time so that at the end, all you're doing is putting each other down. And so to put each other down in your marriage is like cancer in the body. You need to rip it out and speak wholesome words to each other. The final thing is to speak scriptural words. So why should we speak scriptural words? Well, because Proverbs 35, 30 point, or 30 verse 5 says that only scriptural words are true words. Amen? And Isaiah 55, 11 says scriptural words will never return void. I can give somebody some advice on diet and exercise and that's going to potentially hit the target or not. But if I hit them with scripture, God's going to use that and it's not going to come back void. Amen? Amen. And it's amazing how God works because one of the cross references I had here was the very verse that the kids sang, Hebrews 4.12. Why should we speak scriptural words? Because they're living and they're active. Amen. Scripture ain't dead because Jesus ain't dead. Right. And when you speak them, you're speaking living active. So how do we do that? Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Brothers and sisters, we have got to memorize Scripture. We've got to meditate Scripture. You've got to pick a verse, and you've got to all day long, meditate means to chew on it like a cow. You ever seen a cow just chew on something in two seconds? That's how we do devotion. We get our five-minute devotion, we get it out of the way, and then we're good for the rest of the day. God says to memorize it, meditate on it, chew on it all day long, and then guess what happens? When you're in the midst of a situation with somebody, and somebody says, man, I just need, you know, I'm having this problem or that problem, God is going to bring to your mind a specific verse, and you're not going to have to have your Bible. You're not going to have to say, wait, let me turn to this. You're going to be able to spout it out. Now, you may not be able to spout it out perfectly, but you're going to be able to give them what they need. And let me tell you, you know what I often tell people? How many of you do not want to have dementia? I have the gene for it, and I have the gene for macular degeneration. I told my wife, I said, well, honey, I got good news and I got bad news. I said, the bad news is... That one day I'm not going to be able to see you. The good news is I'm not going to know who you are anyway. So that's doctor joking. But I don't want to end up with dementia. None of us do either. You know one of the ways that I tell patients, there's no medication that's going to prevent it. You know one of the best ways to do it? 
brain exercise. And you know what I tell them is one of the best brain exercises? I tell them, get your Bible out and start memorizing Scripture. So you want to ward off dementia, get your Bible out and start memorizing the Scripture. Not only that, will it do that, but then you can go around all day long and you can speak scriptural words. When should we speak scriptural words? Constantly. 24-7, 365. To who should we speak scriptural words? Anybody that's got ears. That includes your dog, your cat, your neighbor's dog, your neighbor's cat. Folks that are depressed, folks that are discouraged, folks that have no hope, folks that are seeking. Don't you know that this world out there that is lost and dying, everything that they say, it is just a guise for that they are seeking the Lord. And they are trying... When somebody's addicted to crack cocaine, you know what? They're not really addicted to that. They're trying to fill a Jesus-shaped hole in their heart with crack cocaine. And they need some scriptural words. And then where should we speak scriptural words? Everywhere. But I think the greatest need for scriptural words in America today, you know where it is? Where I, you're home, for sure. But I'm going to tell you, it's where I'm standing. It's in the pulpit. I have seen pastors waste congregations 30 minutes or hour and never read a verse of Scripture. God help me to take me out of this pulpit if that ever becomes the case for Buffy Cook. But what does Paul say? Here's what's going to happen. Folks are going to want you to tickle their ear. Sugarcoat the preaching. You don't need any of that. And I know with Brother Stan you have a man that does not do that. In closing, any of you ever been to the doctor for a checkup? What's one of the first things they have you do other than pay your copay? <laughs> what? Somebody said, wait. Yeah. We have we for the longest on our scale at the office had a cartoon of a lady and she was laying in the floor and she had the scale up on top of her feet and said, I've been doing this wrong the whole time. <laughs> One of the first things that they'll do is this. Open your mouth and let me see your <coughs> tongue. Jesus Christ, the great physician, would have us do the same. Open our mouths and let him see our tongues. If he were to give you a checkup this morning and then give you a prescription, would it be to speak truthful words, fewer words, pure words, common words, cheerful, evangelistic words? Or maybe it'd be to speak wise words, persuasive words, corrective words, encouraging words, wholesome words, or scriptural words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Father, I thank you for the time that you have given us. Father, to come today and Father, to laugh have joy in your house. Father, we should enter your gates with praise and thanksgiving and laughter in our hearts and our soul because of what you have done for us. Father, we also come seriously. Father, your word in Romans 12:1 says that we're to be a living sacrifice, but the problem with living sacrifices is they can crawl off the altar. So, Father, some of us need to bring our tongues to you and let you give us a prescription for how we can go out and deal with this unruly monster in our mouth. And so I pray, Father, through the last two times that I've been here that you have just not allowed your people to hear from me, but to hear from you. And that, Father, this will be wise words that we can 
take not only this year, but the rest of our lives and spend the rest of our lives applying it, that we can have speech that is glorifying and honoring of your precious Son, Jesus, who came willingly to die for us. Father, as we come to this time of invitation, I just pray you would stir hearts. And Father, that your people would come and do business with you. We ask this now in the wonderful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. I'll try and do this quickly. I know we're a little behind time, but the invitation is twofold, as I've said before. Number one, if you know the Lord, Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. He himself in Matthew 15, 18 said, What comes out of your mouth proceeds from your heart, and it defiles us. Some of us got some pretty dirty tongues that need washed. 1 John 1, 9 reminds us that we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you might want to come this morning to the altar. Just lay your tongue on the altar as we talked about last time. Second is if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus himself in Matthew 12 said, On the day of judgment you'll have to give account for every careless word. And by your words you'll be justified or by your words condemned. And can I tell you, your tongue alone is enough to send you to hell. When people try to tell me they're a good person, I give them a five-question test that proves that they're not good people. None of us are outside of Jesus. You ever told a lie? What's that make you? A liar. Exactly. Most people say, well, I'm human. No, it makes you a liar. You ever stole anything? Makes you a thief. You ever taken the Lord's name in vain? It makes you a blasphemer. You ever looked at someone of the opposite sex lustfully? That makes you an adulterer. Any of you ever screamed at somebody and were so angry with them you just choked the life out of them? Jesus says that's the same as murder. So just with our tongue, a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterous murderer. I said that some of the greatest words in Scripture are found in 1 Corinthians 6.11 because that's how we stand outside of Christ, deserving of hell because of just our speech alone. Paul says 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in Jesus Christ. If you've never been justified by His blood, come receive Him in His gift of eternal life this morning. So stand as we sing.